Welcome to Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School. I'm Megan Muller, and I have here with me three of my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Robert Stacy. Hi there. Kate Gilbert. Hello. And Dr. John Mark Reynolds. You're not Kate Gilbert. I thought she always did the no. intro. I've passed it on. Is it a new world? <laughs> it's a new world order. <laughs> Does education change all the time like so this? Now it's completely different. <laughs> and now for something totally. What are we discussing then today, new Kate? Uh, today we're going to be talking about class structure, why schools structure themselves the way they do, and why mm -hmm. we structured ourselves the way we have. Oh, I care about that a lot. Specifically in relation to teachers and students, the number of bodies in classrooms, and the way that the class style is formatted and structured. So I'll start by saying this. We're not going to talk about this very much, but I just got a flowchart for the whole school our operations person did that. And the interesting thing is our operations person is in the flowchart as a teacher as well. <laughs> and the president's in the flowchart as a teacher. And that's a really wonderful thing about here and should remind us that what we care the most about, what do all those things have in common, children? Teaching. And I think we all know that Jesus took a couple of different size groups with him all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like on the Sermon of the Mount, he talked to a large group of people. Next week, I will give a humanities lecture to an entire university talking about the nature of the humanities, and I, I assume that'll be hundreds of people. But that's not a very valuable experience. What you can see is those people didn't stick with Jesus. I wouldn't say they got educated as much as invited to an education. And then Jesus talked with the many, and then the 12, the three, and then the one. And I'm curious, as I throw it out to everyone else, why you think most schools don't emulate that. And I'm really privileged. This is the first school I've ever worked at. And I mean the first school, and I've been responsible for the design of a lot of them, that's been able to go all that way, where it's the many is often the case. The few very good schools, 12, that might be ideal local school, three and one, three, we think of those three intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John. And then, of course, the one, John, who followed him to the foot of the cross. Well, let me give a breakdown really quickly for those who are listening of the kinds of classes that we do. Okay, so that's when great. we can talk about them, sure. they kind of know what we're referencing. In our lower school, pre-K 4 through 12th grade, in pre-K 4 and kindergarten, we cap every class at 12. So if you're 5 or 4, you're going to have 12 to 1 ratio. But no one has to be Judas out of those <laughs> <No>, 12. <right. laughs> um, well, that's up to them, I guess. But um, <laughs> at the very most, you're going to have 12 uh, to 1 in your Excellent. grade level. Um, after that, starting in first grade through 12th grade, we cap at admitting 15 of each grade level. So um, as we grow, we hope to expand that, but only insofar as we expand class sections mm -hmm. so that we're never admitting 30 sophomores unless we have two separate classes for them to all be in so that they can kind of go along in classes of 15. It's worth saying this podcast is actually a feature of the St. Constantine School that's for the many. But yeah, we don't so offer anything for credit that's, that's to the, the many. many. Yeah, yeah, but we do several things that are for the entire school. So every morning the entire school meets together for prayer, for instance. So that's pre-K-4 all the way through any college students who got up early, they're going to be there. Um, all of our faculty will be there as well. Every third Thursday, Megan has designed the third Thursday lecture series, which means that anyone from the community, including parents or anyone outside of the school who's just interested in the project can come, and that can be as, you know, however many people fit in the room. Um, now, as um, you guys are directing the college, we made a switch this year, 
so that our college students are doing one-on-one -on -one tutorials. That's the very smallest class size we could possibly <laughs> possibly have, and we give it to our most elite students. Yeah, I'm actually curious to know about this, Bob, because I can tell you I coveted that year after year after year at a very fine place, Tory Honors, uh, where two people here got diplomas, really excellent education, but plainly, when school was done with no view towards cost. Right. The one-on-one right. -on -one tutorial, plus other things, other sure, experiences for the students, one -on -one. were the way to go at a very wealthy school like Oxford or Cambridge. Um, why is that so important that people experience that? And why isn't everyone demanding it, given that most students are paying $40,000 a year, though not here, to go to college? Ought to be able to afford one-on-one -on -one at Sure, 40K. yeah, you think of that at that price level. Uh, and, you know, Oxford wasn't always rich Oxford, right? In the beginning, it was poor Oxford. <laughs> it was the Ford that the Oxes crossed, right? <laughs> That's a good so, point. Yes, it is yeah, true that, that, you know, we live in a world that <laughs> tries to maximize, you know, efficiency and, and, and you know, we want to squeeze everything out. Uh, cost-wise that we can. And, uh, you know, there was a big, you know this story, right? There was a big influx of students into colleges uh, in America and parts of Europe, but mostly in America, after World War II, right. the GI Bill and so forth. There's a gigantic wave of, of uh, new students. Most of our universities use the Oxford model. One-on-one -on -one tutorials were not uncommon in the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, but by the time that wave hit, uh, rather than sort of plus up and, and build a faculty to handle that new groundswell of demand, they found it more easier, cheaper, more efficient, whatever you want to call that, to just eliminate the one-on-one -on -one and make bigger and bigger, ever bigger lecture halls. Mm -hmm. And that trend has continued. So as, as populations have increased, yeah, we do hire faculty sometimes. We do grow our campuses, but we also grow our class size. So today, mm -hmm. uh, she's not with us, so going to all of it, I was able to do a one-on-one -on -one tutorial that was awesome in the sense that we got to cover the parts of Spencer that I wanted to cover with that person and got to discuss it at the level that we needed to discuss it. And that would have been different with a different person. Sure, All our yeah. students are bright, yeah. so it's a bright conversation. That, that's the beauty of the tutorial, right? Yeah. It's, it's geared to that student. What are What is this student's strengths, weaknesses? What do they know, what do they don't know? Yeah, I was a student of the tutorial method at Oxford when I was there for a semester. Yeah, so anyways, I, I was a student of the tutorial method. Sure. And though I did go to the Tory Honors Institute, went to Biola, wonderful class sizes, um, all discussion-based, it was really great there's a rigor present in one-on-one -on -one tutorials as a student that is unmatched in anything else. There's no ability to hide right. on yeah, one side point. of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to be ready. You have to bring what you've prepared. Um, and there, there's, there's kind of no going back on it, right? Like whatever you've done is what's going to appear in the classroom. Um, but there's also an ability to go farther as a student. Yes. Um, so if you are the kind of person who is ready and who wants to go deep, there's nothing stopping you on that side either. So it's it's really such a richly tailored education, um, all dependent on the quality of the student sitting across from the quality of the professor. I think, and uh, Megan, I'm curious to know how you'll respond to this. I think sometimes students find places, roles, niches, even in a small class. So we'll yeah. do a discussion class here of three or four last term, and we still do discussion classes. Sure. And in those, there's usually a leader, the follower person, the amen person, the person who's quieter but says really pithy comments. A one-on-one -on -one tutorial doesn't allow you to fall into that role. And I wondered if you'd ever seen that. What? Yeah, so I mean, humans create a team dynamic 
that's just what we do. So if you put a group of us together, we will create a group, not just a bunch of individuals. You create something that's cohesive, that allows you to function. For some people, it's a challenging environment. For some people, it's a comforting environment. Some people are going to do what they're going to do as an individual in a group, which then annoys everyone else in the group. You've all been, I'm sure, been in a class where there's a student who would like to imagine they're the only student in the room and behaves as such. Yes. It's like with anything where you go from, you know, a team sport to private lessons you can't be the person who just passes the ball if you're the only one on the court, Mm -hmm. right? So is it, I'm actually asking this question seriously because as I've experienced even today, and I'll go from this to doing another one, one one-on-one tutorial, now I'm wondering if there hasn't been something missing throughout my life in my own education. I actually, because I got mentored, I got people who picked me. Oh, I'm just going to mentor you. And I spent lots of one-on-one time with those people. And then I think about my wife, Hope, who ever bit as bright as I am, she's quieter. Maybe people didn't pick her as a result for that kind of mentoring. And that seems really sad to me. Are, are we missing out on something when I, we don't get this kind of mentoring? I think our I think something interesting happens in our middle school and high school, which is our students meet in groups in those Primarily, classes. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, the 15 to one is our cap, but you know, maybe there are eight, maybe there are six, maybe there are 15, but they do have to meet once a semester with their faculty, with, you know, with mm-hmm. their, you know, great books discussion leader one-on-one for a significant amount of time. And it is a mental block for some of those students, especially if they've never done it before. The younger wow. you are, I mean, we're starting that with sixth graders. Sixth mm-hmm. graders are meeting one-on-one and expected to be able to carry on a cogent, coherent, educated, informed conversation with an adult. Mm -hmm. And that may be the first time any adult has expected that of them, let alone required that of them. If they're, if the adults that they're speaking to are teachers they've had in the past, their parents, you know, uh, leaders at church, there's not a guarantee that any adult has sat down in front of them and said, now you and I are going to talk and you are contributing to this conversation more than I am, which is what we you know, mm-hmm. expect of our students. They need to be able to carry the ball. We, they don't just respond to what, you know, what a teacher says in the room in that moment. So I think there's an interesting thing. I'm, you know, this is our second year of teaching younger students doing this where, where they're having right. this one-on-one, you know, sort of the culmination of what they've learned every semester. And I'll be interested to see what it does year from year mm-hmm. when we get people going into the college where it's not the culmination, you know, it's not the last day of the semester that you finally have to talk one-on-one right. with your teacher. Right. It's the first day of school yeah. and every day after that. So is it possible that a cultural problem, and my kids say every time I use the word culture, they get to take a drink of Diet Coke or something uh, because I use it so often, but is it possible that our society faces a problem, an inability to disagree, partly for this reason? I'm realizing that for most of us, it's very rare to sit down and have someone critique your view and work hard at your view without taking it as a personal insult, or this is about me, or I must be evil, or things like that. And then I realized, well, when does that ever occur for most people? Mm -hmm. When do they ever, except when they're getting fired at a job and somebody finally critiques them. And I'm wondering if that isn't part of our problem in talking to each other. It also makes a difference when you know that the adult is there because they care about you, not because they're trying to trap you or get you in trouble, or the only reason they want to talk to you is because they want to tell you you're wrong. If people are getting their one-on-one idea-challenging dialogue from, I don't know, let's say social media, 
there's no guarantee that the people who are challenging you are interested in doing anything but communicating your wrongness to you. It's not from a place of care. I was talking with a parent earlier today whose students came into the school at the end of last year and are back again this year. And she said one of the one of the things that let her know that she had sent her students to the right place was the president of our school came up to her and said how blessed we were to have their students here. And she said, no teacher has ever said that to me about any of my children. (laughs) And it's not because she has terrible children. She has fantastic children. It was just the approach, the attitude of we're coming from a place of care for these students, Mm -hmm. which is why we want to talk to them one-on-one, where some kids have never spoken to an adult unless they're in trouble one-on-one, which is the, (laughs) which is the, you know, I'm going to the principal's office. Mm -hmm. That must be for a bad reason. If you raise students, if you educate children in an environment where the only time they get to talk to an adult by themselves is a punishment, mm-hmm. never never a treat, then they aren't going to get to be told they're wrong in a loving or caring environment because the only time they're being corrected isn't, you know, low stakes ideas, you said something weird in class today, right. it's get in here, we've got some serious business to take care of mm-hmm. because you are wrong about things. For people who don't think this applies to the real world, quote unquote, I don't know why school doesn't count as the real world. I'll say I heard Michael Hyatt speak over the weekend. He's an Orthodox blogger who's also one of the leading business bloggers in America. He was talking about education, but he was also talking about the business world. And Megan, he made a very similar point to the one you just made which is performance evaluations in most businesses are so dysfunctional and bad because if the only interaction you have with the quote-unquote boss is when you're getting a performance evaluation, it's so fraught with peril, right? Going into that office means you're going to be evaluated. Even if it's an entirely positive meeting, it's about you and you're being critiqued. Mm -hmm. He pointed out that that person should never be the person doing the reviews. The person doing the reviews should be the person, every Thursday night, I go to a restaurant, we sit and hang out, Uh, we'll eat food. Tonight, we're going to an Ethiopian restaurant because we have a special speaker coming. Any teacher can go to that, and we do hangout conversations. Uh, People who are here on the cabinet, we hang out a lot. We've been through the wars together. That means when we have a one-on-one meeting, I don't think there's an expectation it's gonna be bad or negative or it's about a problem. We often just hang out out in the outer office and talk. You know, Megan makes a great point. Education done well is a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard to have a relationship with, you know, 35 kids in a classroom or 500 people in a lecture hall, right? That's not a relationship, not, a, not really. It also helps to have some expertise. If, if the, you know, the employee evaluation model, you know, is, is sort of fraught and difficult, imagine the social media context, right? That makes the employee evaluation look like a model of clarity and effectiveness. Yes. Uh, Partly because who knows what, right? Imagine sitting across a, a desk from C.S. Lewis discussing, you know, medieval languages. Yeah, I think you might learn something from that guy, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and imagine if your professor cared about your <coughs> development. And it's a way different experience than you're going to get in any other context. So, so something, that, something that has struck me this year that I think I never quite thought about before, but um, a lot of teachers have been reflecting to me, is we often think about a problem of particularly public schools, but even private schools emulate this is class size, where you've got 30 kids in a room. That's unideal. But something that um, was kind of brought to my attention this year is it's not just that you have 30 kids in a room. It's that you have 30 kids in a room that you never see again the rest of the day. So you're actually seeing about 120 kids over the course of each day. Because if you're an algebra, pre-algebra teacher, you're just teaching that class and you're going to teach it to the whole seventh grade or eighth grade or wherever they are at. 
And so you're going to see 120 students. You don't know any of them. And it's very, very difficult to get to know any of them. Um, alternatively here, it's, you really have to get into about 11th grade for you to need to have a different teacher in every class. Um, because the subjects are getting a little bit more specialized. Right. But even up through ninth grade, assuredly, you're going to have the same teacher in at least multiple subjects, if not every subject, um, so that our teachers really are seeing, even with a capped class, they're seeing about 20 to 30 kids a day, and they can know all their names. They, they, they can grow with them. They can um, discipline them the way they need to be disciplined as a human being, not just as a school policy. And I think that makes as much a difference as class size itself, because you do need to have this relationship in order to educate well. That's right. So we have a couple because they happen to be hanging out here uh, during the podcast of our college students here. And I can say in the context of our college, I worry about our four or five full-time college students all the time because I don't want them to be lonely. And I know that if they went to a giant college, they'd be able to find friends. Yeah, and the other day, all that sort of yeah, I, well, sometimes. Uh, the other day I realized something, and that was that college allowed me to fall down into peer interaction friendships where all my friends were about the same age and caused me to not make as many older people friendships or younger people friendships as I would have made in a normal, healthy community. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that Oxford, back before it got itself swollen, Mm -hmm. yes, there was some town and gown, but you ended up having a relationship. Oxford uh, Dons lived on campus. That's why you had to be a single man early on. And you hung out with uh, tutors and you hung out with each other, but you had to hang out with other people too because there just weren't enough people there. And there certainly were no women to meet, sadly, Mm -hmm. in the college of that time. So that college by its nature couldn't be your entire world. Uh, you, no one would have ever gotten married mm-hmm. out of Oxford and Cambridge originally if it had been. Now, thank God, uh, we developed the belief that everyone should go to school. But again, to, to fall back on the model where everybody I know should be in my college class, everything I do socially should be centered around the rock wall and the entertainment the college or the university provides, is I think to live on what a cruise ship for four years uh, with an in- entertainment director mm-hmm. yeah. and not to be forced to have the town and gown conflicts that Oxford so famously had because Oxford's in the middle of a regular city and you ended up interacting with people who weren't university people all the time. I have a question. Um, So we're obviously, the four people sitting in this room right now started this school. And so we're doing the best we can to do what we think is best. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the model that we've set up here, we talk about it from a position where we've thought about what we can do, what we can afford to do, what we should do, and then created what we're doing. We're in a strange spot. I don't know if there are any other schools where the bulk of instruction is coming from a one-on-one student, faculty, Outside of Oxford and Cambridge, no. Maybe the University of the South in Swanee would function this way to an extent. But I want to push on that hard. I don't think it's because of money. Uh, If you look at, I think we charge on average $12,000 in their work study here and other things for college students. Just to be clear, you're talking about college. Yeah, college. Where students in K-12 are paying less than that. Yes. And that's actually where I think more of the argument comes from. I know that it costs um, HISD something like $10,500 to educate a student every year. That's exactly how much it costs us to educate a student every year. We just spend it all on the classroom. So could, that's that's my point. Mm -hmm. You could scale up K through 12 what we're doing, um, but that would mean hiring 
many, many more teachers yeah. and laying off tons of administrators. Mm-hmm. I noticed this at LA Unified so when I began to think about it. When there would be cuts, I'd go down to Compton, which has one of the worst school districts in the United States, and we're trying to help the Compton district. As does Houston. And, you know, out of, yeah, that's true, as does HISD mm-hmm. uh, in some spots. You know, LA Unified's great in some places and horrible in others. I noticed the administrators in downtown never got cut, but there were no textbooks in the Compton classroom. And we've had the experience here in Houston uh, where public school teachers who are in schools that have huge budgets relative to our $2 million a year preschool through college budget, but they have inferior chairs to the ones we're sitting in. And it, it can't be money. At the end of the day, it can't be money. We're prioritizing the smallest ratio and everything building out from there gets less and less of our attention, time and money, frankly, Mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, so we're, you know, this obviously is being put directly onto the Internet for people who are wherever they are to consume. We don't we're not going to cap it like, oh, this only gets listened to 200 times and then we remove it. Like if if a million people want to listen to this, they can. We're not uh, we don't care. That's our that's our, you know, the 5000. Um, we're putting these Third Thursday lectures on our school's YouTube channel. I just uploaded Dr. Stacy giving a lecture that he gave um, last week about uh, President Reagan and the um, Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. My 80-year-old dad still thinking about that lecture, I can assure you, because <laughs> I talked to him about it with Bob, what, two days ago? Just the other day, right? Yeah, exactly. he asked a couple of questions. So. so we don't care if a million people listen to that, but that gets the least amount of our attention. Mm-hmm. We're never going to be the polished content generating machine where everything sounds and looks perfect and our teachers are, you know, whether it's sitting in the ivory tower writing books and doing research or, you know, creating TED Talks that, you know, millions of people want to consume because our teachers have such great personalities. Any of that that we do, like this podcast, is great, but the quality of this will only increase as we are continuing to allow the quality of the most important core things to increase. Like when the water rises, mm-hmm. sure, everything's going to get better. That's a bad analogy for Houston right now. Mm. Um, but nothing will ever be done where we're increasing the quality, where our reach is the most thin, where the quality of what we're able to do, the interaction level that we're able to achieve is uh, diminished. None of that will happen unless we're also enriching and strengthening this core tiny ratio experts, teachers who know what they're talking about in small groups or one-on-one meeting with students and educating. Let let me underline that because that is really rare. And I'll underline it using this podcast as an example. We could have had the money and found the donor. And I've done guest hosting on some of the largest radio stations in Los Angeles. I know what a studio looks like. I've been at a university where I directed having a podcast studio built. Uh, with a certain degree of budget. We had the money when we came in here to have taken one of our back offices and turned it into a studio and prioritized equipment and it wouldn't have been that expensive. Why didn't we do that? Because we prioritized offices for teachers. So we're sitting in one of the college professor's offices doing this with okay equipment that people donated to us, but not the equipment that we could have afforded because we put the money someplace else. Mm -hmm. And where did we put it? where students would first experience it. So yeah, we want to put out a quality podcast and hopefully this is interesting for people to listen to, but I I think we need to underline this. If you go to a church where the brochure 
and the materials on the website are shinier than your experience in Bible study. More money, time, and effort has been put into that than the actual teaching ministry. You're going to the wrong church. You know, the quality of the stage show is remarkably better than the quality of the exegesis of the biblical text. You're getting cheated. I think the same is true for schools, um, particularly in the private sector. There are there's so much competition for extras, and I you know we, we kind of we can talk now about prioritizing teachers, keeping tuition low, and those are the two things that we've done: small classrooms, high quality teachers, low tuition. But that does come at a cost that parents don't realize right off the bat. Like. I've gotten a lot of requests this year. Why don't you guys have college counselors? Like, why don't you have your sports director already? Why don't you have, you know, all these things? And it's like, those are the sacrifices that come. We don't have a lot of extras right now because we always will prioritize the classroom, which means those things have to come slowly. We may never have college counselors because that's an administrative position. It's not necessary. Yeah, here's and the, our sports director is going to be an add-on when we have the time. You know, I have bad news about college directors because I was one and was paid to do some of that and spent tons of time admitting students like y'all, some mm-hmm. of you, uh, in a very competitive environment. And here's what I can tell you. I'd like research that shows a position actually helps do the thing it sets out to do before I go hire a position to do it. So it's all wonderful. Let's go hire a president for creative ideas. <laughs> and does that mean we're gonna produce creative ideas? Let's hire a college counselor. Does that mean the student is more likely to get into the college of their choice or get funding or do well than if they sit one-on-one with their house head, Megan Muller, who is a gifted and talented student athlete who made the honors program that about 50% of the students were turned down her year. Which is the most effective way to go? Now, it's wonderful to say, hey, I've solved your problem, so-and-so, because I hired someone with the title problem-solving person. Yeah. But does that person actually solve your problem or placate you, make you think the problem is solved? And the truth is we all know the answer to that. We all know big organizations end up wasting millions of dollars placating their customers into thinking there's customer service when the customers are, are being served, but maybe for dinner. <laughs> it's just yeah. not what it, because I think people think they want to prioritize education. That's what schools do. And then there's a problem. And so they hire the person to solve the problem. And that's the beginning of the end for education. It may even be if there's an inconvenience, like not sure. even an actual problem. Yes. It's just that our students have to do more college applications entirely on their own, which they should. It's their application. They need to just yeah. do it. This is a terrible thing to invoke, but I think it was Zig Ziglar who said, show me your checkbook and your day planner, and I'll tell you what your priorities are, like, mm-hmm. how we like spend that. our time and our money. Where do we invest our time? We invest it in our students and our teachers. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing that occurs, and I make no apology for this, our aspiration, though we haven't yet achieved it, is to have all our teachers be able to stay here for their entire careers. A lot of private schools are designed around this model. They'll have very senior people, people starting to be my age, who are in the third quarter of their career. And so they kind of step back from the rich job they have and can afford to work for peanuts. And then they have very young, vibrant young adults for whom the very little they're paid is sufficient because they never got paid anything. Mm -hmm. And then what you're missing are the people in their 40s or 30s who want to buy a house and raise children and do well, and you get this giant brain drain. So you're constantly turning over faculty. Uh, The school papers over that with sports teams and other things. The continuity then consists of 
Go Golden Eagles, which I guess is the name of our sports team. Sure is. That's the continuity. <laughs> it no longer is Mr. Chipping has taught mm -hmm. here for 40 years and is now on to the grandchildren of his original students because Mr. Chipping was paid a living wage. In other words, a lot of times this college counselor, career counselor, the multiplication of administrative jobs come out of the base salary of the core teacher. And so the core teacher becomes a turnover site and it's the administrators that are there. And so Mr. Chipping is now the headmaster who's there 40 years. Uh, but the first grade teacher is a different person every single year because the college student burned out or they went for a, a government school salary because they could have not, not because they're evil, but because they could afford to live and retire. We've got an interesting thing going on at the school also. I think, I mean, obviously it was intentional with the hiring of the faculty um, that the school leadership did, but um, we've got a, a situation this year that surprised our parents and our students, but I don't think surprises us, though it was great to see. Mr. Yi, one of our teachers who was hired on the summer before the school started, uh, he's getting a PhD right now. He's studying fairy tales with an emphasis on George MacDonald but he's teaching our physics class this year. He's also teaching logic. He's also teaching ninth grade great books. And he's also teaching what, eighth grade earth physical, physical science. science. Yeah. And it is blowing the students and parents' perception of what it's possible to do when you're an adult because he's interested in all of those things. And he's and, excellent at and teaching And he's them. teaching them science yeah. in a way that many of them are saying, I've never liked science and currently science is my favorite class at this whole school full of classes that I like. When you hire people who are interesting, interested, whip smart, multi-talented, yeah. who care about students, if you can hang on to them, that's a school. Yeah, but to hang on to them means nobody gets into teaching to get wealthy. It's a calling. <laughs> People oughtn't to starve or have to choose between ever having a vacation. And, and here's the point of all that, not don't send us money, we're not asking for that. If you want to, you can. It's to say this, never think that somebody isn't paying the freight. And at a lot of private schools or a lot of government schools, right. the real cost is being paid by low wages of the classroom teacher. And so the football coach is usually the highest paid person is the one that money's coming from somewhere and it's not coming from magic if it's coming from taxpayers that's not an unlimited pot of money and so some first grade teacher is not getting that money so that someone else does get it now that would be fine if everybody were making a living wage mm -hmm. but if you get to the point where some people aren't that's bad i'll say this with one of my own adult children i was having the conversation yesterday at home that said you know, our kindergarten teacher should come over here and give a seminar on such and such a thing. And it actually blew one of my adult children's minds where they realized, oh yes, uh, just because you're gifted at working with smaller ones, we ones, which in fact this, this one person is, one adult child is, doesn't mean he couldn't or she couldn't also be gifted at working with some of our college students or older people. Um, I was just reading through some accreditation documents for a couple of associations that we're looking at, and one of them mentioned that only 25% of teachers are men. And I think this is a similar situation where if a man, you know, it often falls on him to be the person who's supporting his family, and a lot of people cannot do that at a school. 
And so we lose a lot of male teachers in particularly if we don't, if we're not able to pay them in such a way that allows them to afford a family. And I think at Christian private schools, you see that much more so than anywhere else. So you end up with um, schools where the gender balance um, of teachers is, is really, really off to the detriment of all the students. Sure. You know, another way of papering over that, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, how do you make more money as a teacher? Uh, you move into administration, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. The, the salary's even more blown. But that means the more you administer, the less you teach. Yeah. So the best teachers end up being pulled out of the classroom and given other responsibilities because they need the money. To go to the extreme case, the, the joke, you know, from our colleague Phil Johnson at UC Berkeley is that at Berkeley, the goal was to teach fewer and fewer people about less and less as you got to an area of greater specialization. So in his area of law, that meant I have almost no students and I teach them about some micro area of constitutional law. Now I want you to think about this. That sounds funny until you remember this. That's the part of American education that works the best. We're the envy of the world at the grad school, professional level, and people come from all over the world to experience that kind of education. Why? Because perversely, despite the greed that it sounds like is behind that, the grad teacher ends up doing the thing that undergraduate teachers and K through 12 teachers used to do in the one room schoolhouse, Mm -hmm. which is get back to the one on one in the area they're really passionate about. Now, the only thing I would say to Phil's little phrase is that we shouldn't just do it at grad school and it shouldn't be a narrow focus. We need more people like Chris Yee. I have to say about my career. Uh, When I left Biola, one of my colleagues said, John Mark chose to specialize in general education. And I think that's right. I chose to be generally educated and specialize in that. And we need more people that do that. But notice, if anyone's listening to this and went to grad school, how rare it is for people to complain about their grad school education because it does come back to one-on-one or tiny classes or your dissertation advisor. And if you chose poorly there, that's, that's on you. I had to spend a lot of time one-on-one with Deborah Modrak. She was a fantastic person and teacher, a great role model, and she taught me how to do philosophy well. If I don't, it's not her fault. But notice, if I had picked the wrong advisor, or the advisor I wanted hadn't wanted to work with me, that's on me by that time. And so I think down at the kindergarten level, does somebody know your name? Does anybody ever talk to you one-on-one? Because pause, That's we know that works because it works at the grad level. Mm-hmm. I, is this a strange place in this sense? I'm in a kind of school where we sat down in a cabinet meeting and we we're talking, and this was hard for me. I, I just finished writing a blog post about it, trying to record the history of the school and take pictures. And we actually had a discussion. Does it change the tenor of what we're doing yes. to take pictures of it and film it? So the other day- Particularly on a phone. Yeah, on a phone. So the other day I didn't do that and I haven't done that in a while. I'm saying I never would under any circumstance. But I think that's been a positive thing, and it's the kind of community where I feel like, wow, that was really good. I learned something. I learned something that day. And I think if you're not in the classroom and having these kinds of discussions, you just don't learn. My dad came in the other day and put a flea and bob in my ear about something. We may never do anything about it. We may change everything uh, in one particular area as a result. But we took the time to sit and listen to a bright guy Mm -hmm. tell us bright things because that's what we do. All right. Thanks, everybody. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm sorry you got me stirred up. No, that's (laughs) what we're here for. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. This has been Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School.